in time we can find them early, we can cure it. And the earlier we find it, the quicker we cure it. Welcome to Walton Management, where we talk about how to live your best life every day and extend that life in every way. Because no matter how much money you accumulate in your life, if you do not have your health, you do not have your wealth. And a big part of your health is marriage. And here to talk about that today is our guest, Kelly Calabrese. Kelly is a 34-year-old, not, well, are you 34? (laughs) I'll be 52 before the end of the year. (laughs) Well, you look like you're 34, but according to your bio, you have been a wellness coach for 34 years, a speaker, a best-selling author, and an entrepreneur. You have three science degrees and 27 certificates. She's an expert on all wellness topics, fitness, weight loss, energy, youthful aging, and sleep. She's also a mindset pro, focusing on renewing your thoughts, setting boundaries, visualizing, meditating, goal setting. She leads with a spirit, mind, body approach. And as a certified divorce coach, she can help people get through the grief of separation, divorce, and post-divorce life to live an amazing bonus life. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kelly. How are you? Thank you, Justin. Best day of my life. Thanks for having me. (laughs) It's great to hear. Well, let's talk about what all dudes love to talk about, getting married, staying (laughs) married, and if it doesn't work out, getting divorced. So putting on your divorce coaching hat with Intentionally Fabulous, you're coaching people through divorce and helping them go from grief to great. Let's start with your story. How did you become a divorce expert because at one point you were walking down the wedding aisle thinking you were going to be living happily ever after so let's go back to uh your ex-husband how did you meet your ex-husband i'm actually met him at the gym so i used to own oh, health nice. clubs in new jersey and he was one of the members and within about a week of us meeting each other he had asked me out and two weeks later he said his intention was to marry me and two months later we were engaged and I had just, wow. you know, finished three science degrees. I was going to take a year off, go back for my PhD. And so he struck really fast. <laughs> and uh, sometimes that happens and sort of swept me off my feet. I said, yes, we were married a year later and we were married for 24 years. Um, I thought, you know, mostly happily. Obviously, it's never perfect. You don't agree on everything. But he came home and he said, my commitment to our marriage is zero and he left (laughs) and it floored me i actually have a best-selling book called mom and dad paneurs my whole life has been about my family and my identity as a wife and when my kids were born i sold everything my health clubs i had corporate fitness centers i had a school to come home and be the kind of mom that was really involved with her kids and her family and still you know super achieving in my industry but I just knew, you know, I wanted to be there for my kids. So that was the the shocking turning point. Yeah, that sounds pretty shocking. So was he your first serious relationship? I had dated one guy before him and pretty much only the one that I, you know, the sort of the boy next door childhood thing up until I met him. So kind of all through college, I knew he wasn't the one, but it was just kind of, you know, comfortable <laughs> until. And then, yeah, my former husband came along. and so. Yeah, we got married for 25 or 24 years. And so let's let's explore this this marriage thing a little bit here. According to Harvard Health, married men enjoy better health than their single divorce and widowed peers. It covers everything from it's actually good for your heart. It feels good. Uh, Never married men are three times more likely to die of cardiovascular disease. When it comes to cancer, married men survive longer and have better outcomes. Uh, when it comes to mental health, low risks of depression, Alzheimer's, and even financial health, uh, married couples accumulate more wealth faster than singles. So going back to the beginning of your relationship with your ex-husband, was all of this on your mind when you were saying yes and preparing to spend a life together? Well, I don't think anyone goes to the altar thinking they're going to get divorced. (laughs) That is hopefully never on the table. You know, I mean, maybe some people do, but I I definitely did not. I have always been a healthy person. At the age of 13, I wrote in my journal, I will be an exercise therapist, not really knowing fully what that meant, but 
we do things to move away from pain and towards pleasure. And so the pain was a strong family history of heart disease, diabetes, obesity, cancer, alcoholism. And you know, I just looked at all that cigarette smoking and went, I don't ever want to do that. And I was also really happy when I was running, dancing, jumping, cheerleading, swimming. There was this whole endorphin rush. I'm like, what do people not get about this? Like, this is awesome. So I did start studying that very early. And the research clearly shows, as you just stated, everything is better when you're healthy. I mean, triathletes, as an example, they earn an average of $125,000 a year. They are more likely to be married. And so all of this is really interconnected. When you look at the body, the mind, and the spirit, and the design is that we will go through life two by two, you know, not isolated, not alone. Like this is nature's design that we're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. And so that takes two to do that. And there's something, there's a power of two people when they come together in a marriage that, I mean, it's the most intimate thing. And so you're taking the energy of two, the strengths of two, calling out the best in each other, dreaming together, you know, helping each other. Um, filling in where the other person is weak and together you can do way more than you can do alone. And then the person who's alone, so much ugliness happens in loneliness. When you're alone, it, you get into your own head. I'm not enough. You know, I'm not strong enough, you know, thin enough, strong enough. Uh, I don't have the right hair, the right car, the right, whatever. It's not good to be alone because that voice gets in there and you just get this, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not lovable. I'm not whatever. And unless you have a person to call out the good in you as well as the bad in you, I mean, that's what a spouse does. They're supposed to go, you know what? I think that, you know, you have this little jealous streak in you. What's that about? And you're like, no, 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 I don't. And then you catch them being jealous. And you're like, wait a minute, you know, you, you are being jealous or, you know, whatever it is, like when you're with someone that intimately, you see the greatness in them and you're supposed to pull it out, but you're also supposed to see the weakness, the ugliness and, and call that out in them. So when there's two of you together, it's just better. Absolutely. And so you speak very highly of marriage, which is cool to hear from a divorce coach. Um, and a lot of what you're talking about, companionship, accountability, challenging one another to grow uh, for young couples that are thinking about marriage how do you know you're with the right person, the person that is going to compliment you, hold you accountable, challenge you? Because um, especially, I mean, you, it sounds like you got married pretty young. At that point, a lot of people still don't even know who they are, yet alone who their partner is. So what are some things to kind of look for if you're in your late 20s, mid 20s, and in a long-term relationship as to whether this is the right fit for you? That's a great question. So my kids are in college, so I get to have these conversations with them now as they're, you know, dating and going out. And what I tell them is you have to start with knowing what your core values are. So you have to know what is important to you. So for example, for me, um, if someone is a smoker, I can't go into it going, oh, I'll get them to quit smoking. He'll stop. Like You cannot go into this changing you know, just thinking for a moment that you can change anyone, which is what I did with my marriage. I thought, oh, you know, he's the baby in the family and no one's really paid attention to him. And, you know, if I just get him to Tony Robbins and we go to, you know, he'll, he'll get it. And well, he didn't want to be changed. See, I spent 26 years trying to change someone who was very happy with who he was and did not want to be changed. So I tell my kids first, you need to know your core values. So for me, my faith is important to me. So I'm never going to connect with an atheist. I can love them, but I would not be married to someone who didn't have the same faith as me. If you're an exerciser, they're not. I mean, you have to right away, you have to know this is important to me. Trust is important to me. Um, wealth creation. For me, I want to look at their life and see they have some good things going on. They have friendships. They have um, something going on in their career. They're creating wealth. Not everything's going to be perfect, but you need to look at those things and see, does that line up with me? Do they like to travel? And then look at their family because their family will be somewhat of a projection of what they're like. For example, I grew up in New York. I'm in Texas. My girl is a cow girl. She is like in the middle of the thick of like the, the hub of all things, horses, Western, rodeo complete different culture than me. So she's attracted to these like bull riding, you know, whatever. And oh, she boy. loves that. Yeah. And uh, this is her journey. It's not for me to judge, but I usually tell them by the first date, you'll have an idea 
of does this person line up with the core values and maybe you're a little bit jaded or, you know, you're not sure, go on that second date. By the second date, you should have a pretty good idea. You know, don't go down that road for six months, a year, knowing this is not the right person. We don't get a lot of chances at this. So it's okay to go on a couple of dates, you know, see what their world is like, let them be a part of your world, but you'll know for sure by that second date, if they're right or not, if you know your core values. So that's kind of interesting because in your marriage, you guys didn't court very long and you dove into it and it ended up kind of not working out. So like, do you feel like at that time you just didn't, you hadn't identified what your core values were yet at that point in your life. Is that why it led you astray or? We definitely did have some core values. So there are things that traditionally people will stay together. If they have similar education, they have similar cultural backgrounds. They're somewhat close in age. They had similar family backgrounds. They have similar religious beliefs. Um, So there are some things that show you're less likely to be divorced if, and there's like 20 of them. And I had all of them, like, we should have not gotten divorced, except maybe two out of 20. I'm like, I was the least likely to be divorced. And it has to do like the size of your ring and the size of your wedding. And like, were you really focused on the right thing? So, you know, we were Italian, we were from New York, he did value family. Um, He just did not have a lot of good things in his life if I were to look. I mean, had I looked closely, I wish someone would have taken me and and shook me and said, oh, my goodness, you two are so far apart, which is one of the final things my counselor said to me after being together 20 years. Like, you guys are so, so different in, you know, what you're going after in life and what you value. So I didn't know that back then, but there were things about him that I loved. Um, he was fun. He was funny. He was the baby. I was first born. I was serious. I was intense. I, you know, I ran hard after things and there was a whole fun world out there that I didn't even know existed. And I was like, wow, this, this would be fun. And so I really thought that he would love me no matter what. And it, knowing what I know now, there's things that I would definitely do differently because you have to hold up the mirror at some point. It's never a hundred percent him and 0% me ever. It's just not. So you need to go, okay, what part did I play in that? And I want to make sure that I don't bring that into the next relationship. Because what happens is we keep repeating. So we meet the same girl with a different face, but she has the same addiction or the same, whatever it is, she's an enabler or needy or a perfectionist, or, and we keep attracting that same one because of, you know, what we're looking for and how we're wired. Yeah, and I'm hearing you mention a lot of different things and a lot of different aspects of marriage. And and marriage is a complex thing. It's a lot of different types of relationships all bound together into one relationship. But the one thing I haven't heard you really say is love, which movies, TV shows, fairy tales, stories, they all tend to emphasize the love aspect of marriage. So what what are the misconceptions about pursuing a marriage blindly out of love? Yeah, so love is definitely important. And and that's the lens that I look through life with now. Like I want love to win all the time. So there's the romance part of love. There's the chemistry kind of love where you can't fake that. (laughs) Like he could be, you know, she could be beautiful and wealthy and, you know, all these things. But if there's no chemistry, you can't fake that. I, I don't think you can get past that one. Or you're really setting yourself up for disaster thinking, oh, I'll you know, she'll grow on me or, you know, I think you have to have that chemistry. So letting love win first means you have to love yourself. So many people are in this place of self-rejection, self-blame, victim mentality, terrible self-talk. So you have to come to the relationship as whole a person that you can on your own without the other person. So you're not necessarily looking for that person to completely you the relationship is hard. Marriage is hard. You're taking two completely different people. You're putting them together and expecting them to, you know, thrive and be happy and be in love. It's hard. There's all kinds of little triggers and things that we're bringing into it. So whatever that you can do to be as healthy as possible, emotionally, physically, relationally, socially, really putting whatever pain from the past in the past and starting fresh by renewing your mind, by knowing what you want, um, really will help to set you up for success because it's it's going to be a battle <laughs> it just is <laughs> but it can be beautiful when you're both at a place where you can communicate and you both have this peace about you versus being 
explosive or angry or you know narcissistic or you've stuffed all your feelings down like try and fix as much as you can now before you get there because whatever's inside you when you're pressured when the stress hits is what's going to come out of you so if you've stuffed down all these emotions and you're defensive and uh, just prideful or you know whatever it is is ugly <laughs> you've pushed down it's eventually gonna come out it might be a year into the marriage it might be six months two years but ultimately it's going to come out. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I love taking care of yourself, putting the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on your neighbor. I think it applies to so many different relationships and so many different aspects of your life. Most importantly in marriage. One of the other things about marriage though, that it's unique is the timeline of it, right? It's supposed to be a lifelong commitment, which can create pressure to pull the trigger in the beginning. I think for a lot of dudes, but then once you're in the relationship, it's also just, it's, it's a long timeline the rest of your life. And so even if you're invested in yourself in the beginning, you know, we all go through ebbs and flows in our wellness journey where sometimes we're not taking the best care of ourselves compared to other points in our lives. What, from your perspective, 24 years of marriage and as a divorce coach, what can couples be doing that are early in their marriage to make sure that they avoid that slow fade that decades later, they're just kind of two strangers coexisting and no longer in a, a compatible partnership. Yeah, that happens a lot. People say, oh, we grew apart, you know, but then I see them, you know, they left the wife and they're dating the next woman and they're going to the movies and they're going bowling and they're going to, okay. I'm like, had you done that with your wife? You probably <laughs> together. But you get to a place where you've got two hurt people hurting people. So wow. you're hurt and he's hurt and you know each other's triggers and you keep pushing those buttons. Um, so what's important is that you do continue dating. You keep the romance alive. You find out what he or she likes and doesn't like. There's something called love languages, just as a simple example. Have you heard of the love languages? It's been a long time. Can we okay. review those real quick? Yeah, the dudes so don't know? there's five different ways that people like to receive love. And these are only five, but they're kind of big ones. One is physical touch. And you'll, you'll kind of, when you are aware of them, figure out pretty quickly to someone like they like a hug or they've got your hand, their hand on your leg, or they just want to be touching if you're watching TV. Um, another is words of affirmation. So they want to hear like, good job. Wow. Congratulations on that promotion. Or, you know, that just the words are important. They need that affirmation. Another is quality time. So it doesn't have to be quantity, but quality time, just being with you, doing something together. I feel loved when you're with me. Another is acts of service. Oh, he put the laundry away. Like, oh, I just feel so loved when I walked into the house is clean and he made dinner. And so it's some type of acts of service. Let's see, what am I missing? Um, gifts. So some people like my son is gifts. And I knew this early on when he was little, even as third birthday party be like, oh, how did my aunt know I love Spider-Man? I mean, you can just see, like, get me a gift. I'm like, oh, so when you can be aware of that, like, wow, this is how she feels love. Like my husband wasn't gifts, but I love to give gifts. And he could, I mean, I bought him motorcycles, car, vacations. He could care less. He was about physical touch. And the second one was quality time. And how we like to receive love isn't necessarily how we like to give love. For example, don't don't buy me a gift. Like I thankfully have everything that I need, so it's not how I necessarily feel loved. But give me words of affirmation or do an act of service for me. Uh, oh my goodness, I feel so loved. So just kind of figuring out how does the person like to give love and receive love. What makes them feel loved, and just dialing in on that and making sure that you're feeding that love language all the time will just make them feel loved. So you need to be aware of these things. So go on marriage retreats, go, you know, get a marriage workbook, like the love dare and do that stuff where you're writing love notes and you're setting up romantic dates and, you know, figuring out, you know, a little, whatever you made their lunch for work or just something special. It's like a 30 day kind of a workbook where the other person doesn't know you're doing it, but they're like, Something's different. Like, what? Why? Something's going on. Like, I just noticed they're kinder or nicer, or they did this for me. Or, and then what happens is when you start acting that way, the other person feels loved, and then they start acting kinder and they want to give back. And 
I've helped to save marriages that way just by working with, say, the woman, the, the spouse, where she'd come in like, I can't stand to be in the room with him. Like, I don't want to look at him anymore. And if I can just get her to work on her um, and she gets in a better place and she starts being a little kinder to him, then that reciprocity starts to happen where uh, the love connection can happen again. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. So everyone has like a primary and then like a secondary of the of the love languages. And then yeah. there's some that they just don't care about. Gotcha. I haven't really reflected on that in a while. I vaguely remember learning about that. But I'm gonna check out the love dare. That sounds like a fun that's the name of the book. Yes. That sounds like a fun one to participate in. Um, so when you're not expressing each other the, your love through these love languages and you're not working through the love dare workbook, there are some challenges that are inevitable in a lifelong commitment and so some of those can tear people apart um i was looking through the internet and PubMed, and there's some emerging themes of what kind of threatens a marriage it seems like the three big ones would be a lack of commitment which can be expressed in a lot of ways conflict and arguing which seems like finances can play a big role in that and then infidelity is also a big one. And infidelity tends to be the last straw. Domestic violence, definitely a last straw. Substance abuse is another one. So I kind of wanted to touch on these and expand on each of these. In terms of lack of commitment um, and it just not feeling like a partnership anymore, one of the things that came up was a lack of emotional support, which I'm not sure many guys in a relationship think about that aspect of it. And so what could married men and married women do to make sure that they are consistently supportive from an emotional perspective? That's a great question. So you do need to be together to make that happen. You need to be dreaming together. Men could definitely be better listeners. Men traditionally are problem solvers. So when a woman comes in and she just wants to talk about her day and the guy wants to go, well, why don't you tell your boss this? And what? And she just wants yeah, you to definitely listen. definitely my reaction. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Yeah, the guys are... <laughs> They just want to solve the problems. And sometimes the woman just wants you to listen, but you're dreaming together. Well, the challenge though is that I always run is like, what am I supposed to? I'm just then it looks like I'm not paying attention. If I'm not like the way I actively listen is to actively solve the problem as they're coming up. So when I try and be like, all right, I just gotta listen right now, I feel like I it, it seems like I'm not paying attention. But I my wife would probably say that's not the case. She probably thinks I'm just listening, but in my head, I'm always wrestling. With yeah, that aspect of just being to empathize. So like, wow, you know, I'm sorry you really had a tough day. I'm sorry that, you know, that didn't go, you know, how can I support you? Or mm. what, what do you think you're going to do about that? Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's just a simple question. Like, so they're, they're dumping, they may be verbally vomiting and just sometimes a, some empathy, like, wow, I'm really sorry that that happened. How can I support you? Mm. And sometimes they're like, oh, let's just lay on the couch or, um, you know, they may give you a solution or you might ask them, you know, what what do you plan to do about this? And that may help them just sometimes to get the words out or think it through. And then you can say, do you want want to know what I think or do you want my opinion or did you just need to talk? Gotcha. <laughs> and so asking really good open ended questions. You know, one of my favorite ones, again, with my college age kids, when they come to me is to go, wow, oh, you know, sorry, the coach said that. What do you, what do you think you can do about that? And it just makes them think differently too. So sometimes something different needs to happen because we get in this rut. It's like if you go out the door and you walk across your grass the same way every day, every day there's this track. Well, the same thing happens in our brain. So we know we come in, this is what we're doing. We're going to dump, he's going to try and solve our problem. So sometimes you need to blow it up. You just need to mix it up, you know, go somewhere different, have a different question to ask, um, you know, just have something else that you're working towards. Cause sometimes just the different thing will make you stop and go, okay, I have everything and I have in my life right now because of every thought and every action, every belief. So if I want a different result, I need to mix it up and do something different. So if I want more love, more romance, then I'm going to need to maybe have some more gourmet time with her. Maybe we're going to need a, a spa night or, you know, a weekend in the city or the country or you have to mix it up because 95% of what we do after the age of 35 is habitual. So we Whoa. just get in these ruts. We get in these routines. We do the same thing every day. I mean, think about most people eat the same, like 12 different foods. <laughs> they have one or two different breakfasts, two or three different lunches, four or five different dinners. And that that's it. And so we do the same 
routine. So mix up your workout, mix up your, you know, do you want to meal prep? Do you want to, you know, get food delivered? Do you want like do something different because it changes your brain. And then you start renewing your mind and go, wow, you know, that was really enjoyable. We should do that more and just not stay stuck. The, the mm-hmm. stuckness gets really old and stale and stressful. So intentionally blowing up those habits is a great way to support someone emotionally. Yeah. And being an empathizing listener rather than an active problem solver. I can handle that. So when it comes to conflict and arguing, though, and the numbers around uh, couples in debt and just having different financial goals and different incomes, it seems like money can be a big, big factor. What, what is your advice around that when it comes to finances straining relationship in a marriage? Yeah. I mean, money is absolutely one of the biggest factors of divorce hands down. And there's a lot of communication that needs to happen behind money. I mean, money is the number one subject talked about in the greatest book of wisdom that's been around for the longest time. Money was talked about more than anything else in the Bible. So there's like one clue going back as far as you can go. So obviously it's important. We can't get through probably a day in this world without having to make some decisions about money. A lot of us did not have money that was modeled well for us. So we didn't come from a family that talked about money and maybe there was scarcity and poverty around money. So we come into the marriage with these ideas about money already. And I'm again, looking at my kids starting to graduate going, how are they going to you know, survive and thrive in this world with the starting salaries and the cost of living? So having these conversations about you know, saving, giving, spending, budgeting, they're the hard conversations, but if you do what's hard now, it makes your life easier. So if you're willing to sit down and say, how are we going to do this? And you might need to get help. You might need to go to a financial advisor, um, you know, a money counselor and bring your two ideas together because you both had different backgrounds and maybe completely different. So um, bringing that together, saying, okay, we're a family, we're bringing our money together. What does this look like? We have a savings account. We have a spending account. We have an account where we can just blow, where we just take the money and let's just go have some fun. No guilt. Let's not think about it. Let's plan it together. And then some couples have a limit that they will spend without letting the other couple know, like sort of to ask permission. So depending on your finances, maybe it's 500, maybe it's 5,000, maybe it's 50 that you can just go and, you know, do that without telling your spouse, but anything above that number, like don't come home with a new motorcycle kind of thing without us talking about it. So um, the communication is really, really important. And when you get serious about it, it is so fun. Like when you start paying off debt together and you're in it together, like we're going to pay off your student loans. And there's so many amazing financial advisors out there. So pick one and follow it. You can't go wrong. Even if people are like, oh no, I'm not that guy. I don't agree with how he If you pick one and you follow it, you're going to get out of debt. You're going to build wealth. You're going to give and you're going to accomplish some things together that really will be incredible versus always fighting about what did you spend? And what do you, you didn't tell me this and look at the credit card. And so it's a big, big, one of the biggest areas of communication is definitely money. Yeah. And like you were saying too, it takes discipline to be, you know, financially healthy and when you put that discipline into something and then you can accomplish something that satisfaction is is euphoric uh, especially to do it with your partner so one of the other things too i'd never heard of financial infidelity until i was looking into this but it's that unfaithfulness the financial unfaithfulness that you were just talking about not blowing if you have that 500 cap not going out and spending a thousand dollars without talking about it one survey from a credit card company said 28 percent of those surveyed considered financial unfaithfulness worse than sexual infidelity. Um, But sexual infidelity is another big problem for marriages and can lead to divorce. What do you think is going on in a lot of infidelities in in marriages? What do you think is is motivating people to go outside? There's a lot there. So obviously trust is the number one thing in a marriage. And once that trust is lost, it is really difficult to rebuild. Not impossible. You have to both really, really want it. I mean, you have to do some deep, deep, deep forgiveness work. So if someone is being accused of infidelity, then they're like, well, I'm being accused anyway. May as well go out and really do it. 
So it, it can start small and we are designed to be addicted. We just are. And we're designed to be addicted to a higher power and anything we do short of that will never fill that gap. So whether it's pornography, sneaking around, uh, you know, having side money where you're gambling or bringing up credit card bills that you have in your own name, we're going to keep trying to do something to fill that need that it's a love gap that's missing. So whether it's alcohol, I mean, it doesn't matter. We're, we're going to get addicted to it. It could be exercise. It could be something that starts out good. So we're always looking to fill that need to feel loved. It's the number one need that every single person that has breath has to feel unconditionally loved. After that, the number one need a man has is to feel respected. The number one need a woman has is to feel secure. So using money or infidelity as the example, um, if a woman starts feeling insecure, like, where's my man? Why is he not home? Why is he not answering the phone? What's he doing uh, you know, in the basement on the computer so much? Or as soon as she starts feeling insecure, she's going to act out to the man. And now he's going to start to feel not respected. What is she accusing me? I'm not working. I'm trying to. And the more he feels disrespected, the more he's going to make her feel insecure by the actions that he starts doing. So this vicious, vicious cycle starts yeah. happening of, I don't feel secure with my man. I don't know if he's going to provide for me. I don't know if he's being loyal. And then he's like, well, she doesn't respect me. Why should I, you know, tell her about the money I made, the bonus I got and, you know, what I'm doing at happy hour. So it, it again, comes back to communication. It comes back to trust. But again, maybe it wasn't modeled for commitment. There is generational divorce. There's generational infidelity. There's, I mean, the media, or I mean, it's just normal to see TV shows. I mean, Disney, whatever, it starts young, not modeling good parenting, good marriages. So that's what people see and that's what they do. And because we're in a society where there's so much just immorality and we're looking at more than 50% of first marriages that end in divorce. And the second marriage rate, divorce is even higher because you take your same self that's all broken and, and messed up and you bring it to habits. that yeah. second marriage. And now you're less patient and you're, you're just not willing to, you know, face your own, you know, ugly stuff or put it up with whatever from someone else. So it just perpetuates. So at some point you've got to say, okay, this stops with me. I'm committed in this marriage. I'm going to be a loyal husband, a loyal wife. I'm going to pour into this and it's going to take work, but I believe it's going to be worth it. And you just do it until you believe and you do and you act until. So your thoughts become your actions, your actions become your character, your character becomes your identity. So if you're starting with the thoughts of I can have this trusting a marriage where we thrive, where we're in abundance, where we're healthy. And I want to do that generationally for my kids and my kids' kids and their kids. And you just believe that's possible and you work towards it together, then you have a fighting chance. If you're just letting the world decide you know, what you should do and you don't have those morals and you're not willing to stick in and fight, like the, the woman wants her man to fight for her. And as soon as she starts seeing like, well, he's not willing to go for a counseling or he's not willing, he hasn't had a date night with me in six months, or she starts to feel like he doesn't want to fight for me. Like she wants to feel like that princess or that queen a little bit, that fairy tale. And he wants to be like the warrior for his family. He should want to go out and fight for his family and really, you know, be a provider and stand for what's right and have fun too. It's not just all struggle. It's just have fun and, and be in love like you're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And kind of continue on that, the, 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 the fighting for it, the, the difference between fight or flight. One of these, you know, final straws, infidelity, domestic violence, those make sense. The one that's a little bit more nuanced potentially is the, the substance abuse aspect. I can see how that, you know, would be a final straw, but it's also something that people that are addicts will tell you it's a disease and that they only have limited control over that disease. Where is the line between standing up for your partner and helping them fight through that disease and being there to support them as they're going through their addiction versus just saying, I, I can't do this anymore. I've, I've had enough. When do you know when to call it quits there? Yeah, there has to be some boundaries. I mean, ultimately, you need to protect and guard your own heart. You know, first, you can't put yourself in a situation of danger and just crashing and burning with that person. 
So you have to have some boundaries in place where are you in counseling? Do you have accountability? Are you going to your 12-step program? Um, especially with COVID, people who came home and now, you know, you're not hiding those bottles anymore, those needles or whatever, like you're together all the time. You're not just, you know, going out and having a liquid lunch or now you're together. So it really got intensified where more things were revealed when couples came together and they really see each other for real <laughs> because they're together all the time. So I would say do not put yourself in an abusive situation if it's not safe for you. If it's not safe for your children, if there's kids involved, then you need to guard and protect your heart. If they're not doing their part to get in counseling and you don't, you're not seeing improvement and you're in danger, then you you need to get someplace safe and you, know, you encourage them, you support them, but do it from a place where you are safe. And everyone has a different bottom. Everyone's got a different low. Sometimes I wonder how low people are willing to go. People will go pretty, pretty low. And you don't need to crash and burn with them. You're not called to do that. Interesting. Interesting. And you know, one thing I don't see on all these lists, but I kind of think and I see a lot, a lot of after having kids that it's in the, the early years of their raising kids that everything seems to hit a fan. They end up tearing apart. What's going on there? What's the role of kids in a marriage? And how does that make a marriage stronger? Or how can that make a marriage more fragile? The number one age for divorce is 30, which is usually about that time where you might have gotten married your mid to late 20s and you start having kids and all of a sudden you've got a house and you've got mortgage payments and two car payments and now you've got kids and doctor bills and you know more health insurance and so the stress really hits of the responsibility, you know, financially, emotionally, relationally. And a lot of times the, the wife, the mom becomes the caregiver. So now all the love and attention goes to the kid and it's not on the husband. And now life as you knew it is completely different. Your weekends are different. I mean, you're not sleeping. There's a lot of things that happen. So the marriages that are not solid, there's a good chance that they could blow up when the stress really gets high. Because if one isn't feeling love, they may go look for it somewhere else. And mm -hmm. so women need to learn the order that their husbands actually come before their kids. Obviously, you're not going to put your kids in danger, but you need to still tend to your husband. He still has needs. So keeping the order of things is important. And then she needs a break. Like husbands, grab the kids, let your wife go get her nails done and have a girl's day or something. So there needs to be a balance between everyone's needs getting met. And it's a lot with kids. If you've got a special needs kid or you're both at work full time, you're trying to afford daycare. So there's just a lot that happens. The second age for divorce is 50 is the second highest age. And that's when like the kids are going off to college. And now you're like, we don't even know each other. We don't even like each other. Like, how do we be here? What are we yeah. doing? Yeah. You know, we made all these sacrifices. Now it's time for us. We're going to go off and have some fun. And so that is the second age that that really happens. Um, so the kids, what every counselor will tell you is do not stay in a bad marriage for kids because you're just modeling for them what a bad marriage looks like. So they're gonna see the fighting and you think, oh, they don't know. They know, your kids are smart. They can see when there's disrespect and they can see when there's not you know, a united loving family. And so staying in it and hating each other, being angry, all of that for the kids, every counselor will tell you, don't do it. Interesting. And one of the things that you touched on, uh, the altruism, like especially women putting their husbands first when they have kids, which probably goes against their instincts to some extent. There's just a lot of giving involved. That's one of these themes that you keep going back to. I know some very successful dudes who have become really successful because they are really good at putting themselves first and not necessarily they give to themselves before they give to the people around them. How do you incentivize them to be more altruistic without compromising their drive right some guys look at themselves and say and i'm successful because i give to myself all the time and that allows me to provide for my family but if they're doing that all the time then they're not giving to the people that they love how do you navigate that any advice there it's a great question. Yeah, there, there's definitely a balance. And sometimes there's seasons. Like if you just, hmm. you know, graduated college and you're you're just running after that career, trying to, you know, make it up the ladder and build, you might be heavy in that career in a season. And you're, you know, you're building and growing. 
Um, but then when you have family, it needs to shift a little bit. And then, you know, when you get married and you have kids, and so you need to have that balance. There may be a season where maybe you're exercising a little bit less because you're not sleeping because you've got an infant. So when you are called to go deep in that season, you go deep in it because you can grow in it. You can have some massive gains. You can make investments. You can get ahead. You can make the connections, the networking, all that you need. But when you have a family and you're in that season where whether they're little or you're coaching little league or whatever, you need to balance it out and look at, okay, I've got 24 hours. I want to sleep this much. <laughs> I want to work this much. And if you look like people like Tim Ferriss with the four hour work week, there are ways that you can really just get it concise, work on the important and urgent things, work on the things that move the biggest levers so that you don't need to sacrifice your lifestyle and your family because you're working, you know, 70 hours a week for 20 years. I mean, you're not going to finish your life and wish that you did that for any amount of money in the bank to have your family blow up and your divorce and your kids are on drugs. They don't talk to you. I mean, you just have to keep common sense, you know, in the, the realm of the boundaries too. And people who are the most successful, in fact, one of my books is called Success Habits of Super Achievers. If you look at the people who are the most successful, something happened to them. There was some adversity, something came along where they were going to crash and burn, but they used it to overcome and do something amazing with the pain to really do something meaningful and leave a legacy. And usually they figure out how best to spend their time so that they can make a difference in the world, but still enjoy themselves and their family. Because in the end, it's not worth sacrificing your family. I don't know anyone who finishes their life and says, I wish I spent more time at the office. And I blew up my marriage and you know, my kids are in jail or addicted or teen pregnancy or whatever. Like that's a season when you have those kids that, you know, that's your shot. Like you're planting good seeds in them for life and for generations. So it's a decision, right? We, we get to decide what we do with our life and our time. And some people figure it out and they do it really well and others crash and burn. Yeah, I love that. I love that seasonality. That's something that I haven't really thought about and it really resonates with me. It's a great way to go about doing it. And when it does crash and burn, let's, let's talk about the, the emotional costs and how that can lead to the physical costs. You're obviously extremely into health, wellness, and have been, it sounds like, your entire life. Going through divorce, the grief, guilt, regrets, what kind of toll did that, can that take on your, your physical health by way of your emotional health? That is a great question. So thankfully, I was in great health when I went through my divorce. I do not know how people do it without being in good health. Oh my goodness. If I didn't have my health and even having my health for the first time in my life, I had panic attacks. I could barely sleep. I ground my teeth down to nothing. I had PTSD. I mean, the physical component of the emotion, you just can't separate it. Um, I, I couldn't think. I knew people were talking to me, but I had no idea what they were saying. I was driving my kids crazy. I was repeating things. They're like, mom, you just said that. Mom, we just told you that your brain just fogs out. And so if I wasn't already fit and healthy, I don't know how you do it. Cause I had my outlets where I got up and I exercised every day. There were mornings I got up and I just laid in the gym and cried, but I got up and I put on my workout clothes and I just, I would lay on the mat and just sob. And I still had my, you know, my green drink in the morning. And I had my vegan protein shake. And so I was still doing all the healthy things. So if you're coming into this, not healthy, Oh my goodness. I mean, I can't even imagine like the migraines, the inflammation, the, the disease It's going to affect your gut. It's going to affect your brain. It's going to affect everything. So when the tornado of divorce comes into your life and really blows up every area, it's called a major life event for a reason. It affects your friends. You probably are going to move. You might need another job. Maybe you've been at home for 20 years. Now you've got to work. Your kids may be changing schools. Your kids are emotionally dealing with things in different ways. Your friend group is going to change. I mean, everything changes. You've got divorce attorneys. You've, you're seeing the ugliest side of the person you married that you have never seen or thought you would see before. And so it's just an unreasonable attack of difficulty. So if you don't have your health, oh my goodness, like you're going to get taken out because you need to be strong mentally, physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually. Like for me, the spiritual part was strong and I was still a mess. Um, so you do go through it 
So what I had decided early on was I was going to keep every area of my life as healthy as possible so that if something happened, it wouldn't be a massive catastrophe. Um, divorce was, was big and it was still massive, but I had money in the bank. I was connected to my kids. I was physically healthy. I had good relationships and emotional support. I had family close by. Um, so it wasn't a total wreck. When I first went to divorce support and I listened to the stories of some of the people in there who, you know, left with the clothes on their back and they're living in a trailer next to the train tracks. I mean, my goodness, it, it can really, really be a mess. So every day, regardless of what comes at you, opportunity or obstacle, you want to be in the best shape of your life. So have your life in order, have the friends, have the money in the bank, have the savings, have the connections. It just makes sense because the hard stuff's going to happen in life. It just is. But be equipped, be prepared, be as well as you can be physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, socially. So for your intentionally fabulous clients, what is the process like? I mean, that's a lot to cover. So when they're first approaching you, how do you prioritize where you guide them? Yeah. All, among we, all those things you just touched on. It's great. We start with identity because hmm. it's just, you're emptied out. You're on your knees. Like everything you thought in your world, you know, where you lived and who your friends were and who you were married to and your, you know, your nuclear family, like it all just changed. And you start questioning, like, who am I? How did I get here? What really matters? So we start with that building and rebuilding their identity. The next thing we do, and people usually hate this initially, is forgiveness. Because people are like, oh, you know, if you knew my story, you would not be telling me to forget. <laughs> but really, the whole thing is about yourself. It's about forgiving yourself. A lot of times, if you were left, you feel rejected. If you left the person, you feel guilt and shame because you blow up your family. And we feel like a failure either way. So it's just forgiving yourself. And it's a whole process, but it's beautiful. It is amazing. When that happened to me, finally, it was like I peeled back those layers and I finally had this peace for the first time when I got through. I wish I did it first. It was one of the last things I did. So we do it early on. Then we talk about renewing your mind. So stop that same train track of this was unfair. This was unjust. This was, you know, whatever he cheated on me, whatever. We need to stop and renew the mind to new thoughts and new possibilities. Then we talk about purpose because there's still an amazing plan and purpose on your life. That dream in your heart, that thing you haven't explored, what's left of your life. Let's start getting excited about that and visualize something amazing and working backwards from there. Then we talk about um, self-love and gratitude because it's a, they're both superpowers like if we can get them there where they really can start loving themselves and stop hating themselves and being a victim and use gratitude with where they're at it just gives them power for where they're going we do talk about divine health we talk about abundant wealth because single moms are the number one area of poverty number one demographic in the country so i get them back to thinking abundantly there's so much scarcity and fear around money for a single woman and then the last chapter is joy, celebration, you know, like resurrecting yourself. It's not all suffering and hard. Like you can still have fun and laugh and um, be excited about life. So that is an amazing process for navigating all sorts of trauma. It sounds like alone divorce with the forgiveness aspect. I think it's really interesting that that's second. And you said it's a long, complex process, but what just real kind of quick in summary, what is that process? And is that a series of exercises you do? Is that more of a conversational therapy that you go through? What are the practices involved in that process? Yeah, it's about an hour training that I do on forgiveness, but ultimately I get them to a place where they look at why are you not forgiving yourself? Like, are you holding your own feet to the fire? Are you burning yourself, like making yourself suffer and rejecting yourself because you're not forgiving yourself? And so it's, you know, apologizing to yourself. Maybe you need to write yourself a letter. Maybe you, look, you need to look in the mirror and say these things to affirm yourself and just create this atmosphere of forgiveness. A lot of times it's also not modeled for us growing up. You know, we didn't learn about forgiveness. It was like, tell your brother you're sorry, you know, something like that. But it wasn't like really you know, putting an end to this cycle and lightening up and creating joy and not getting addicted to your own story. But ultimately what I decided was to live a life of pre-forgiveness. 
So even before someone hurts me, first of all, why am I so easily offended by someone <laughs> who cut me off or like, I have no idea what's going on in their world, but I decided that I'm going to live a life where I'm not going to judge people. I'm not going to be affected by what's going on in the government. Uh, I'm not going to criticize myself. Um, I'm just going to look for a win-win. So I pre-decide how I'm going to act and receive and be before things even happen. And it's just a way for you to live in, in great, great peace. That's awesome. And be a light for the world and the people around you. I love, I love all that. Um, so that process that you just laid out sounds pretty extensive. How long are your clients normally working with you before they are back on their own feet? Yeah, so it's an eight-week program. And then wow. after that, um, I have a group that they can you know, be in the group. The group is awesome. In fact, I have a free group anyone can join called Intentionally Fabulous. And we talk about the hard things. You know, For example, <laughs> the other day we were talking about what'd you do with the pictures? What'd you mm. do with the wedding ring? Uh, what are you gonna do about Christmas cards? I mean, all these things that when you're getting divorced, you might not think about. Like, what about the in-laws? What about holidays when you're by yourself? And what do you do on the weekends when you have the kids? And and uh, we support each other and we laugh. And, you know, so there's a lot of encouragement in the group. And then I also do have a, just a select group that I will do private coaching with, where we'll do an hour session, you know, weekly or bi-monthly. And I work with them until, you know, some people it's 20 sessions, some people it's 10 and, you know, some are ongoing. So is the goal to get them back into the dating pool or is it more for them to feel safe being alone? Both, you know, if that's what they want, if that's what they desire, you know, some people coming in going, I don't need a man, I'll never, that's, that's not how I feel. And we can get them to a place where they start to reopen their heart again, where they start to really trust again, where they're coming out, feeling confident, feeling courageous, feeling whole, that now they're feeling safe to go out and go to dinner with someone or, you know, just dip their toe in the, the dating pool. Um, but either way, it's whatever they decide. I don't ever tell someone what to do, but I ask some really good questions to bring out the truth and you know, really go deep about what might be hidden and is what they're thinking really the truth or just something that they're saying for whatever reason. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Well, is there anything else about divorce that I haven't asked that we should we should cover? I feel like we've been all over the block. You asked so many great questions. Um, I mean, my goal is always for marriages to stay together as long as it's safe. So I would say to anyone, if you're feeling like our marriage is rocky, we're considering divorce, we're separated, go for, you know, get help, get support, get counseling. Either way, whether you stay married or not, you still want to be the best version of yourself. So try and save your marriage if it's safe for you to do that. Um, that that's always the goal because it can be amazing. There's some incredible stories of couples that are just so in love after having gone through a difficult time. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Kelly. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for all this wisdom. It's been incredible. You are truly an inspiration. I love your mindset and your approach to life and living uh, on all aspects. And I really appreciate you sharing with us. Um, for everyone listening, Kelly's a wellness expert and a certified divorce coach. If you'd like to learn more about Kelly or Intentionally Fabulous, the group she mentioned, you can go to the website, uh, Kelly Calabrese, K-E-L-L-I-C-A-L-A-B-R-E-S-E.com. We'll put a link uh, in the thing. And if you enjoyed the show, share with your friends, like, subscribe, you know, the whole deal. So thank you so much, Kelly. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Justin. Time, we can do it. find them early, we can cure it. And the earlier we find it, the quicker we cure it. Powerful for the human race. This is the wealth of a nation.